Hello and welcome to Panoramica on Flirt FM and wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm joined by somebody who all of you um, will will surely know, broadcaster, dancer and author of six books, uh, one of which has just been released uh, called Journey to the Well, which um, she wrote with her sister, Deirdre Nikaneda. Mary Kennedy, thank you very much for coming on Panoramica. It's lovely. It's lovely to have this opportunity to have a nice, relaxed chat and um, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the cup of tea as well. <laughs> I, I've never been given a cup of tea by an interview, uh, an interviewee. So uh, you grew up in Clondalk and uh, Mary. Something that I found fascinating was that you shared a room with your sister, who you've co-written the book with, um, Deirdre. How did you find that? Uh, sharing the room? Yeah. Well, we didn't have any choice. There were uh, four children and three bedrooms. So my mother and father had one. The two boys were in the box room, the small one. And Deirdre and I then had the back bedroom. Uh, it was just the way it was. Uh, my mother is one of seven. And again, they were in a three bedroom house. So there were two boys. They got the, the, the luxury of just two of them in the in the room. And then she and her four sisters. So there were five of them in the other room. Um, it was fine. Uh, we were, I suppose, of a different age. We, we are really close now, even though... I live in Dublin and Deirdre lives on the Aran Islands. She lives on Inishmore. But when we were growing up, um, we were there was six and a half years between us. And I'm older. Um, and she uh, had different friends. You know, we were at different stages. In actual fact, when I finished college and was doing my HDIP, um, I went back to our old school, Colosh the Breda, in Clondalkin. And I was Deirdre's Irish teacher. <laughs> okay and you didn't give for her a year did you give her special treatment or did you avoid that well she's the person you should be asking that but she says definitely not she said it was a it was a trial because uh when we would be at home um having tea and she might be doing her homework she says i don't remember this and i'm sure it's not true she said that if she asked me anything you know about grammar or something like that i i apparently turned and looked down my nose at her and said uh, we covered that in class today. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the, was Irish very important, um, Gaelga uh, very important in your household growing up? Well, both of my parents left school at 15 as soon as they, they could because um, they were, uh, they, the, they had to get jobs and the, the money was needed in the, in the households. Um, but my mother took extra classes. We were living in Clondalkin, as you say, and Gailin, which was a kind of an Irish um, language organisation, um, ran classes for adults in the village. And fair play to her, she enlisted and she took those classes purely and simply so that she could help all of us with our homework as we were going through secondary school. Now, she... Um, she she was she was wonderful and she she was very bright i mean she would have got she would have been so um accomplished had she had the opportunity to stay on in school but that just wasn't an option she took these classes and she ran if you like little grinds around the kitchen table um now i remember um it was fine. I was well able for the, the grammar and I love grammar. I just love the structure of all of those things and the rules and making them happen. But my brother next to me, John, and two cousins who lived next door because my mother and her sister had a double wedding and bought houses side by side. And mommy used to do the grinds for them as well. And it was like a circus. 
It was just like a circus. They had no more interest in Irish and Irish grammar than the cat. But anyway, she persevered and she 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 dragged them kicking and screaming through the intercert, as it was called then, and through the leaving cert. And they're all there to the good now. But I have to, I, I admire her as mm. a woman who said, OK, this has to be done. And uh, this is my contribution to them doing well in school. Um, and she just did it. And why Irish? Did you ever find out why it was Irish? Of all the subjects that she could have got the course in and helped you all with, did she have that passion from an early age herself to get... Uh, well, she would always, she was from a family where they would like sing songs and Irish tradition and Irish history and nationalism and things like that. But Irish was a little bit complicated, that's why. Um, there's no way she could have tackled French, but she had done Irish up to um, up to 15 years of age and she felt she could help out. Um, the things like... English and maths and history and things like that. Well, it was a question of sitting down and, and learning your books. But she was, uh, yeah, she did like it. Um, I've never really heard her speak Irish after that much. But when Deirdre went to live on the Iron Islands, she and I would go over and visit. And I'm very proud of the fact that for her 80th birthday, she climbed up to the top of Dunangus, which is um, not bad for an 80-year-old woman. Sadly, she died three years later at 83, but um, she was she was a, a powerhouse, a real matriarch. Mm. Um, and you, you yourself, so you speak Irish, English, and then you also speak French. Yes, yeah. I love French, yeah. And I studied um, in English, Irish and French in UCD and I dropped English at the end of first year uh, and purely and simply because uh, you had better chance of getting a job with Irish. There were 12 people in my Irish class. We were doing honours Irish in UCD and I reckoned, you know, by doing the math um, that there were going to be 12 people graduating with Irish Whereas there were maybe 200 going to be graduating with English and French. So that was my my uh, combination. And I, I just love, I love Irish. I love French. I love France. Um, and yeah, it's language is just a, a beautiful way of expressing a culture and um, a, a heritage. In Irish, it's traditional. In French, it's quite sophisticated, but they're both lovely. And did you spend time in France then after you studied it, uh, studied the language in college? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, when I finished in college, I went to France to teach English to postgrads uh, in the University of Rennes in Brittany. And that was lovely because actually it's a Celtic country mm -hmm. and I shared um, an apartment with a Scottish girl. And she's Celtic as well, therefore. So we were wined and dined. We had the best social life ever. Everybody wanted to have the Scottish girl and the Irish girl over for dinner or for tea in the afternoon. Um, and it, it was it was really, really very nice. Um, the only, I suppose, damp dampener on the whole year was that my dad died suddenly while I was over there. I was due to go on Easter holidays with a group of friends to Spain and got a call uh, to say... They didn't tell me that he had died, but uh, he had been playing golf and uh, he had collapsed on the golf course. Now, that meant all sorts of organising to, to get home. And then when I walked through the, um, the arrivals door in Dublin Airport, oh my goodness, I knew because his brother, my godfather was there, my uncle from next door um, to us in Clondalkin was there and uh, a very close friend. And I don't remember anything other than seeing them, but they said that I just roared and 
uh, bald. But yeah, that was that was very, very traumatic and very difficult. And it was hard also because at the end of the two weeks of being at home for my father's funeral, it was the first time we were touched by death mm-hmm. uh, in our family. And he was only 59. Um, uh, I went back after the two weeks and had to finish out the academic year in the university in Rennes. But also I also felt that my mother uh, would have preferred me not to go back, but I just couldn't do that. So, But it shows a lot of courage and determination, commitment as well, to return to a job um, after such a, a terrible bereavement. Yeah. And was it just out of commitment or did, did the university sort of tell you you have to come back? No, no, not at all. They were most kind. To be honest, Tom, I think it was, it was such a sad time at home. I'm the eldest of four and in actual fact it happened at the end of March and that June my sister Deirdre was taking her leaving cert and my younger brother Tony was doing his intercert and it was just such a sad place. Um, it was back in the day when, when somebody died, uh, my mother, uh, the widow, she wore black and she wore black for a year and that's something, oh. yes, and after six months she would wear a white collar. And that was the kind of the the easing into coming back into um, normal society. But I, in a way, it was it was nice to get back to um, a place that I didn't associate with my dad. A very sad thing happened when I got back, though, because um, I think you know I'm the eldest, and um, if you were to ask any of my siblings, they'd say, "Oh, yeah, you were his pet." <laughs> <laughs> but um, when I got back, he was a great man for writing me letters um, and he would write a letter. I'd write back. He'd write another one. And when I got back to Wren, there was a letter there that he had written two days before he died. And that was hard. But, you know, those those are part of life. And I think that I heard somebody say some some in some book or something that uh, you 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 appreciate joy because you have known sadness you know, there's, there, there has to be a balance and there has to be um, joy, there has to be sadness. And you, you appreciate uh, the highs when you have experienced the lows. And that was definitely the case. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it because if you're constantly happy, you're never happy. Yeah, you're always yeah happy absolutely. I agree. And I, and I, I also feel that um, nobody is constantly happy and anybody who tells you that they're constantly happy is telling you a lie. <laughs> Um, so you came back from France mm-hmm. uh, and you became a teacher. You didn't go straight into media at all. Uh, you, you you taught. Uh, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I went back yeah. to yeah. back to my old right. alma mater mm-hmm. and was teaching Irish and French. And uh, I would say within months there was an ad in the paper. This is back to how they used to advertise for jobs back no then. Jobs. Yeah, or, yeah, no jobs.ie. Yeah. No. 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 Uh, there was an ad in the paper from RTE looking for part-time continuity announcers. And continuity announcers, um, it was kind of a big deal in those days. They they appeared on screen and they would be there like um, saying, "Well, that was such and such a program, and now we're going to have the Late Late Show, and the people coming up on the Late Late Show will be this." So you know, you got your makeup and um, your hair done, and I mean, for that little part-time job, first of all, you had to do um, an interview, then an audition, then another interview, and then um, uh, if you were successful, you did a six-week training course. Imagine a six-week Continu- training continuity course. Continuity announcing. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah. Uh, but it was a wonderful, wonderful training ground. The other thing about it that's interesting, I think, is that when I applied, um, I said, well, I, I, I felt that I'd always worked when I was in college. I'd always had a part-time job in a restaurant and I was a tour guide in Dublin Castle and anything that would bring in a few bob. Um, and when I, when I was working full-time, I said, well, I, I'd finish at four. And also um, I would, because it was secondary teaching, and also uh, the holidays were very long. I said, so what am I going to do with the rest of the time? <laughs> so when this ad came up, I said, eh, try that. Um, but I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my mother. I didn't tell any of my friends because um, the way I was brought up in Clondalk, and you kind of feel, oh, notions. The way the way they would refer to it now is notions. Who does she think she is applying for a job in RTE over in um, in Donnybrook? You know, the only time I was uh, in Donnybrook was getting the 10 bus from O'Connell Street right up to Belfield and the reverse from mm-hmm. Belfield right into O'Connell Street to come home um, when I was in college. So, yeah, I did it. And then all of a sudden um, I was taken on for this six-week training course. And I said, I'm going to have to tell my mother. <laughs> <laughs> You're not just going to disappear off the face of the earth for six weeks. <laughs> no, and it was during the summer, the, the, the school holidays from um, teaching. So it was, it was perfect from the point of view of the training course. Um, and then, yeah, I was put on a panel and... Within weeks, you know, you get little mm. jobs to do. And, and I, your sister, Deirdre, was doing an interview a few weeks ago um, about your new book, um, Journey to the Well. And she she said, she quoted your mother as saying, I don't know whether it was to her or to you, as saying, you're giving up a permanent pensionable job. That was her. It was her permanent <laughs> pensionable job. It was her permanent. I didn't give up a permanent pensionable job. Um, I continued to teach yeah, when, um, when I was doing the part-time continuity announcing. And then I um, took a career break. Uh, because I, I had just had my third child and then I had my fourth child. Um, and to be honest, there was a part of my mother. She was my child minder. She was hugely supportive, but she was the old school. And she really felt that I shouldn't be teaching. I shouldn't be working. I should be at home minding my kids. That's the way. That's the way she would have looked on it. She had to give up her job. She worked in the College of Science. Um, she was a civil servant and she had to give up her job when she got married. Uh, and she kind of felt that was the way it should be. But with, um, so I, then I did a lot of part-time work. I mean, I was only full-time in RTE when the, the children were more, much more grown up. Um, but no, Deirdre was giving up her permanent and pensionable job <laughs> as a primary school principal to um, to study psychotherapy or something, which my mother wouldn't even be able to spell. <laughs> and then when you took that break, uh, what was your return then to, to media after that break? Um well, I didn't take a break from media. I took a break from my full-time from job, from t- which was a career break, and you mm-hmm. could take five years. Uh, during that time, I had uh, I had just had Owen, my third child, and then I had Lucy, who's the youngest. Um, and I was off full-time work for five years, but I was doing bits. Um, I was working as a newscaster. I was reading the news on a part-time basis. Then I was doing reading the news on Saturdays and Sundays. It always fitted in very well um, around children and their activities. Um, and they were very, very supportive in the in the newsroom. Um, and then I, uh, I was chosen for the, the Eurovision. And that was the year at that my career break finished so I had to decide and to be honest um, I felt it would be silly not to give it a go 
And also, I there must have been a bit of my mother in me because I didn't want to be teach. I didn't want to be working full time. I wanted to be there when the um, the children were getting into the you know the higher classes in primary and going into secondary school and things like that to be there for them. Okay, and we'll jump into Eurovision now. But here's just a clip. You've probably heard it so many times over the decades, <laughs> but I still love it. Um, and it's courtesy of the RTE archives. President, Lord Mayor, Taoiseach and in particular visiting delegates from all over Europe, Radio Telefi Sharon is pleased to welcome you once again to the Point Theatre in Dublin for what has almost become the annual Eurovision Song Contest from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> those kind of lines, I presume they were really prepared. Um, we wrote a script that was me and um, the there was a, a producer assigned to the presenter, mm-hmm. um, a, a lovely man called Kevin Linehan, who um, died a few years ago. Um, but he was just a, a really gentle person. And he and I sat down and we, we wrote the script. And yeah, why not? It was the third time in a row. It was um, because um, Linda Martin won in... Malmo in Sweden and that brought it home to Ireland in 1993 and that was in Mill Street um, where Neve Kavanagh won and then uh, the following year it was in The Point when um, Charlie McGettigan and Paul Harrington won with the Rock and Roll Kids and also that was the Riverdance year of course, yeah. and then the following year it was in The Point again and it was my turn and the other thing I'd like I, I just like to say is that when it was when it came from Sweden, when it came to Ireland for the first of those three years, I applied. I wanted to do it. I really wanted to do it. I'd been a fan of Eurovision oh, from the time Dana won in 1970. But I auditioned and I didn't get it. And I auditioned the next year and I didn't get it. And then the third year, I, I did get it. I don't know whether they felt sorry for me at this <laughs> stage, but I do feel that you've got to persevere. Mm. You really do. You can't feel, oh, they didn't choose me, therefore I'm no good. You really have mm. to um, have that mindset and, you know, do and, that. And was there a difference between how you auditioned or how you applied in the in the third year compared to the first two? I, how you became successful then? Um, okay. No, I think there were different producers. Just different different producers. And okay. different producers have... Um, you know, they choose different presenters and you just have to, you know, acknowledge that. Mm, Because it was previously, the year before you, it was two presenters, Jerry Ryan and... um, And Cynthia Niwerku, yeah. uh, So you must have really impressed them if you were... I did it on my own. You did it by on yourself. Yeah, I actually think it's easier to do it on your own. I I think it's easier because um, you don't have to stand and look at a camera and, um, you know, look interested and interesting (laughs) and, and not speak. It's much easier to, when you're looking at a camera to be speaking rather than, you know, going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what was it? Was, was there any pressure on you? Because the year before um, Riverdance took Eurovision and the world um, by storm. Mm-hmm. Did that put any pressure on you? Um, no, it was. I was just so thrilled to be a part of it. I, I was very nervous, obviously, but it's so well rehearsed. And there were two dress rehearsals um, uh, the, the, the night before. Um, the day and the night before. Uh, but it, Riverdance was fab, and it really is. But there was a fabulous interval act the year I presented it as well. It was called Lumen, and it was um, a wonderful amalgamation of... Um, Brian Kennedy was there, 
Clonard was there. It began with the monks of Glenstall doing, um, you know, a Gregorian chant and Michal O'Sullivan was um, the musical director. It was stunning. I would advise anybody to to go and um, to, to search for it on, on YouTube. It is there and it's called Lumen, L-U-M-E-N, and it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. And then was there any, so forgetting the, the, the success of the previous year's Eurovision um, in the point, was there any pressure on you, let's say, as a, as a, a woman at that time, bef- before? Um, it was a, a thrill, it was a joy. Um, I was just delighted to, uh, to be a part of it because um, the first year it came back, of those three in a row in Mill Street, it was also um, a newscaster who was a colleague of mine who presented it, Fanula Sweeney. She went on then to work for CNN. And then there was uh, Jerry and Cynthia. And then um, it was my turn. Th- no, I just couldn't. As my brother says, I was sucking on a lemon for the whole time to try and keep a smile <laughs> off my face. I was just so thrilled to be doing it. And what was the preparation like then? Because huge. It was huge. <laughs> I, what classes? What were the most strange classes you had to do with the most strange preparations well, I didn't have to do any classes um because my french was good having lived in france there was um a, a french woman um she is the wife of the he was head of news at the time, Joe Mulholland, and her name is Annie Mulholland, and she was French. And her job with the presenters was to kind of go over and get their French pronunciation right. Um, but I didn't have that. I, I just have a, I just love lang- languages. Mm. Um, so it was absolutely beautiful. I was given the morning off once a week from the newsroom to go over to Annie's house in Fox Rock, which was quite close to Donnybrook, and we would drink coffee and uh, eat biscuits and just have chats in French. It was just gorgeous. And she said, I really don't have to teach you anything. I said, but just keep me talking, keep me talking in, in French. It doesn't lovely. sound too bad at all. It yeah. was fab. No, and it was lovely. Then uh, I heard you mention once that yeah, you had to do what standing up lessons or looking down or looking straight, those kind of... Oh, now they had a very complicated and really intricate and oh, elaborate entrance for me um, where I appeared at the top of uh, steps, 13 steps. Imagine putting 13 steps. 13 steps, <laughs> like an angel coming down from heaven. Well, you had to walk down them. You couldn't just fly. <laughs> but to get there, um, I had to go up steps at the backstage. And once I went up those steps, all of the support team, like the hair, the makeup, um, the, the dress designer, Richard Lewis, designed the dresses. They were all there kind of minding you and uh, the, the guys putting the microphones on. But once you went up those steps and I was way up high uh, looking down on them, it felt like the final scene from A Tale of Two Cities, I've got to tell you. You know where he's standing up there and he's about to face the guillotine. That's what <laughs> it felt like to me. So then you've got to go down the, 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 the 13 steps. It was so beautiful. And they were, they were black. Each step, when I would go down, um, th- there was a piece of black silk, and it would be re- it would reveal the next step, and the next step, and the next step. So my training was that you had to walk down and not look down to look out, mm-hmm. and not kind of um, not kind of go bump when you got to the end. So you kind of had to count and look and. Uh, and not trip up on the the silks. And in actual fact, on the day of the Eurovision, um, there was a cartoon in the Irish press, which was still there at the time, and it was um, of me 
going head over heels down the the steps with my the heel <laughs> of my shoe caught in one of the black silks. They had they had been at the the dress rehearsal the day before, and the production tree, team tried to not let me see it. Um, and I saw it around lunchtime, and they said, "No, we didn't want you to see that. It'll just get into your head." And I said, "No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine." <laughs> <laughs> and then did funny. you have to do any um what do you call it elocution lessons or anything, anything oh i like i had been doing um well they were called elocution lessons mm-hmm. when i was doing them from the time i was about seven years of age my mother sent me to elocution lessons um and also to irish dancing lessons and i went with two friends from the from st bridget's road where we where we lived in clondalkin um and the reason she sent me to the elocution lessons is, believe it or not, because I was very shy. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, I am still shy. And I think, you know, that's uh, some people say, how can you be shy when you, you work in, you know, in, in the public arena? No problem. No problem being shy. But you just have to be shy and still do it. You know, you cannot let your shyness uh, get the better of you. And that's really, um, you know, a piece of advice I would give to people as well. So she she sent me to Irish dancing classes because I used to turn my toes in. So they were to get your feet to turn okay, out. Yeah, okay. I was a bit pigeon-toed. And the elocution was because of the shyness. So, yeah, I've been doing those. I did all the exams and all the feshes and things. And so did my kids when, when, when they were young as well. And I can remember being at Fesh Matthew in in the Father Matthew Hall in Church Street, looking at them up on the stage and my heart would be pounding for them. And I said, so this is what it was like for my mother when she was sitting listening, watching myself and Deirdre do the, the fesh. Okay. And when you finished uh, with Eurovision then, what, what was what came next in your career? Well, when I finished with Eurovision, um, it was, uh, that was May. And in August, I had to decide, am I going to go back teaching? And as I said to you, I didn't really want to I loved teaching. I still love the idea of teaching. Um, I'm still very friendly with the the teaching colleagues that I had. There were eight of us in a group that we started at the same time. Now, they're all retired, um, but we meet up, uh, or we did before COVID. Uh, we had our children around the same time, and, you know, we, we remained very, very close. But I didn't want to. I, I resigned from full-time teaching, and I continued on a part-time basis in the um, newsroom doing the the news reading and that's when I did it at the weekends I did the six and the nine um bulletin on television on uh, Saturdays and Sunday evenings and then things just started to be offered you know I was offered um an education um program for uh leaving cert students it was called give us a chance and it was a it was a very interesting um, it was with a live audience of students and a panel of educationists. And then there were other things as well, you know. So things just gradually started to get bigger. And then Open House came along, with them, um, which we did for six years with Marty Whelan. That was fun. That was the best fun. Because it was live. I love mm. live. I really do love live. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was called Open House and it yeah. was a chat show. But it was great because um, we just tried everything we would have I mean we had live music uh, once a week we had live cookery demonstrations we would have chefs in and then all of a sudden this young guy called Nevin Maguire came in <laughs> to uh, to try it out and he had a baptism of fire because during the the lunch break the the set uh, the, the cookery set which was on wheels was out in the in the scene dock out in the the shed if you like and then nobody the, something went wrong with the, the the fire door and we couldn't open it uh so the cameras were brought around and he had to do his cookery slot in the shed 
And he was so impressive that we said, oh, look, he's going to be our chef. So he was our resident chef uh, for the whole six years then after that. And he's still a good friend. Marty and I went to his wedding. Um, He comes here every Christmas, just the week before Christmas. And we have um, mince pies and um, tea uh, when he's doing his rounds. Um, But, you know, he was always very good. It was a Tuesday. And (laughs) my children used to say to me, um, what's Nevin cooking today? Um, because they knew that whatever Nevin was cooking, he would bring an extra casserole of it or whatever, and he would tell me to bring it home for my kids for dinner. Oh, lovely. <laughs> it was lovely. Yeah. Um, and the funny part there, about you're right about live programs, that anything that, nothing really goes wrong with pre-recorded, or some things might go wrong, but just everything magically goes wrong yeah, when it's but, live but as long way. as you don't as long as you don't kind of get phased by it we just said look we're going to have to do this here the door won't open and um he didn't couldn't put the thing into the oven because there was uh, there was no electricity out there um and it was a little bit dark but it's fine that's that's life it works um, out. yeah it's fine and there's also what's lovely about live is there's a different energy. There just is a different energy about it, which is uh, which adds to the you know the experience for the people taking part and also for the viewer. Mm. And then uh, did you go on to Nationwide straight after the, that six-year run with uh, Martin? Yes, yes. Uh, it was then stopped. They, um, RT decided that they wanted to give it to a different independent production company. It had been Tyrone. Um, and it was funny because uh, during... I had a big uh, rap party for the whole of the, the crew and the production and Tyrone here in this house. It was in the conservatory there, it was here, it was everywhere really. And we had a little dog called Patch. He was a little terrier. And Tyrone were producing um, a play in the Abbey at the time mm-hmm. called The Chakron. And Adrian Dunbar was in it. And they had uh, auditioned and gotten a dog. There's a dog who's central to um, the, the play and he's called he was called Tatters. And they had one of these really, you know, these kind of actor dogs from a school of acting, of acting dogs. And the um, he was just very, um, I suppose, jumpy. And that day, he had uh, Adrian had taken him down Abbey Street for a walk, just so that they could get used to each other. And he just raced off. <laughs> and just, they got him back, obviously. But um, they just felt he wasn't, um, he wasn't great around people. And here, there were 80 people here. And there was our little Patch, who was a little mongrel. And they said, you know, he'd be great. So he was brought in and he was the the uh, the dog. He played Tatters in the Abbey. He went then on to uh, the West End. Really? <laughs> yes, the following. Yeah, in Trafalgar oh. Square. And he, they stayed, my daughter and he lived in Trafalgar Square while it was on there. Um, but um, it was just a, a lovely way of transitioning because I can remember... I was unemployed, if you like, because the, mm-hmm. the, the program Open House had finished. And I can remember doing an interview and there was a, a headline in the paper after I'd said that um, Patch was doing, um, he was playing the part of Tatters in the shock run in the Abbey. And the headline was, the dog is the only person working in that house during the summer. God. <laughs> true. And, and you're la- true. Were you laughing then? Oh, <laughs> As you're yes. laughing now oh, at yes. that hour. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd already been approached by okay. Um, okay. Nationwide, but yeah. Couldn't say anything about it. Couldn't say anything, yeah. And straight from Nationwide, uh, straight from Open House into Nationwide, which Uh, I loved. How many years were you on Nationwide? 15. 15, wow. Mm -hmm. And is there any corner of the country, any town that you haven't visited because of it? Not Not many. Not many, no, no. And um, it was just lovely. It was, uh, it's something that really has always appealed to me, even before 
uh, I was with Nationwide. I just feel that we are um, a race of very entrepreneurial, hardworking, uh, intuitive and creative people. And we have a great sense of community. And it was just um, a joy and an honour, really, to be travelling the country and showcasing all of these enterprises or community efforts that were taking place right uh, in every corner of the land. And you'd always get a great welcome. Um, you'd, there'd be tea and coffee to start off and uh, people would come out. I can remember people coming out of uh, shops and saying, you know, we have a coffee machine in here. Any time you get cold during the day, just come in and we'll get you coffee <laughs> and a sandwich. They were just so lovely. Um, I really enjoyed it. It fitted in very well with... Um, with the values that I have for for Ireland and for Irish people. Okay, um, and by that point, I suppose you you had become a household name over the previous decades. Uh, and you mentioned there, but y- your mum as well, uh, sort of. Oh, don't get notions of yourself. This is when you're starting mm-hmm. out in media. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you find that sort of being? It's a strange word to use, but being famous in Ireland. People are very nice in Ireland. They um they they leave you alone for a start when mm. you're say for instance you're in a restaurant, um, uh they would maybe come up and say uh, after a while say do you mind if we get a photograph? That's fine, and they always say very nice things to you. Well, they might say different things behind your back, but <laughs> <laughs> they always say nice things to your face. So I'm that that's fine. Um, oh, I don't know. I think Irish people are pretty well grounded. I mean, look at the the big names that you um you know that we've we've exported if you like people like Liam Neeson and Gabriel Byrne they are as ordinary as the day is long I mean I've worked um, at, at award ceremonies and things like that with with various people like them and they're just ordinary people they don't have um, kind of they're not looking for an entourage or special treatment or you know I, I think I, I think our our DNA is such that we're not kind of overly impressed by show and mm. bling and you know status. It's no, nah, I don't think so. Think it's a nice, it's, it's a nice place to be famous compared to other. Yeah, other I'd imagine probably. so, yeah. and um, and I suppose people get caught up in in other cultures, like um, people get caught up in maybe what's expected of them that you're expected to be a little bit aloof or a little bit apart um we're we're working we're doing a job and also we're um you know the taxpayer is really when you're talking about the national broadcaster the taxpayer is is paying the the bills so you have a, a an obligation to them mm. and did you ever um Ever get to a point where you just felt drained? It's happened with a few presenters. Uh, there's a great book by a radio presenter, Dermot Whelan, uh, Mindful. And he tells about his, his early, uh, the early days in his career when he just couldn't say no to, he couldn't say no, so he was doing everything. Um, did you ever find that, that you were under pressure? By well, I did go doing? through a stage where, you know, you, you would do everything. But mm. a lot of it is charity as well, and I'm sure the same is true with Dermot. Um, you know, it's very hard to turn your back on a charity. You, you kind of... Um, you, you temper it after a while. Uh, it is exhausting. But then I was younger um, and I was able to do those things. Now I'd be um, quite selective, I suppose. I have my favourite charities and I'm more than happy to work for them. And corporate, um, well, it's been very easy for the past <laughs> two years because most corporate events happen via Zoom. <laughs> so, you know, so there's been that. But um, no, I, I love them. I love... Um, I, I like people. 
I like meeting people. I like when you're, say, hosting an award ceremony and uh, people come up to you and say, oh, you know, I, my dad worked with your dad or, uh, you know, my brother knows your brother from the Gaeltacht or something like that. I like that. Mm. It's, a lo- it's a lovely thing um, that we can, we can always draw a connection, no matter where you are. You could end up on the moon and you meet an Irish person or something. Sure, like look, I mean, we really punch way above our weight. We are... Um, we're a, a tiny little country and we have given the United States two presidents, JFK, Joe Biden and Barack Obama has his ancestral mm. um, heritage uh, in this country as well. That is like phenomenal. We have um, an invitation to the White House every St. Patrick's Day. I'm sure there are countries around the world say, what is it about them that they get invited to these things? Another part of it, I think, that's very important is everywhere you go in the world, and I've travelled widely in um, in Africa, um, everywhere you go where there is want or where there are people in need, you will find Irish people. There is no doubt. It just happens. I suppose... Um, Historically, it was missionaries that went out to um, African countries, but now it's NGOs and it's volunteers, and um, I, I think also that's part of our our um, our genetic makeup. We we care. We are a compassionate people. I remember um, Bob Geldof at the time of Live Aid, um, kind of persu- uh, saying that uh, per capita we were giving much more uh, in donations than the the British people and he was now he was quite impolite about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a much it more polite way of saying, yeah. And um you yourself are quite involved with charities, particularly St. Vincent de Paul, is that right? Yeah, I'm I'm a member of St. Vincent de Paul here in, in my parish. And uh yeah, it's um I've been gosh, probably about eight years involved. And I think that was the one I chose to become involved with because my father was in the uh, Vincent de Paul in Clondalkin. And I just felt I wanted to give something back. And this this just fitted in very well. Mm. We used to have meetings uh, every Monday. We still have meetings on a Monday, but they're via Zoom. And then we uh, we visit people who, who need a bit of help or a bit of support, and, and that's fine. Then beyond human uh, physical, would you... Um have a belief in any God or would you have any? Yeah, I'm a very traditional um, kind of a la carte Catholic. Um, I grew up, I mean, we grew up, I can tell you. Um, we said the rosary every single evening after tea. My mother used to, um, she had the, the rosary beads hanging up beside the, the fire and we used to be always trying to distract her, particularly in the summer when you'd be wanting to go out and play rounders on the road. And you would do anything. You'd be there on the edge of your seat saying, time to go now. And um, and also remember that I had three cousins living next door and you'd uh, hear them coming in. You'd, the boys would want to go out and play football. And you'd be just, you'd think you were out the door and then you'd hear Tom hand me down the beads <laughs> to my father. And there was issues, oh God, here we go again. So yes, I say that to say that we was a very Catholic um, uh, household. Um, my mother was a daily communicant. She went to seven o'clock mass every morning. Um, we would be, well, I think, uh, and I have really close friends who are priests, two in particular, who are very, very close friends. Um, but um, I mean, I don't think that if I don't if I go don't go to mass on Sunday I'm going to go to hell. You know, it's different. I think it's a way of um of of living that's important. Um I would 
I live my life um, with the aspiration of there being an afterlife. Mm. And that informs the way I live my life. But it's just as good uh, because of the way I treat people because of that. Do you know what I mean? If, If there is no afterlife, well, that's a pity. I hope there is. And I live my life with that aspiration. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that's as much as one can expect at the moment. It would be pretty sad to think that <coughs> when everything ends, it just ends it's there. Over. There's nothing yeah. after. Yeah, I, but, I, I, um. I think it's too rich. I think, you know, there, there is a, there's a spirituality. We have a spirit and the spirit will continue in some form or other. Yeah. Um, and we'll move on to your, your new book now, which you've uh, written with, with your sister, Deidre Nikoneda, uh, Journey to the Well. What's, what's the book about? The book is about, uh, we grew up on St. Bridget's Road in Clondalkin, and at the end of our road, there was a St. Bridget's Well. And you know the story of St. Bridget's Well. She uh, had asked her um, her father up in, he was a chieftain up in Fahart in Louth, to give her space to, um, to build a... Um, to give her money to build um, a monastery she was uh, and he wouldn't so she traveled right down the country and everywhere she spent the night apparently a well grew up this folklore um a well grew up the following day and they're places of healing well as are wells like in in other parts of the world as well so this is a it's called journey to the well and it is the well of healing deirdre runs retreats in celtic spirituality um and this is a book that's aimed i suppose at us um connecting to our celtic um dna and our celtic qualities and ancestry and with a view to uh, it informing and helping us as we emerge from the pandemic mm. and it's based around the celtic calendar which is winter is Samhain, which is the beginning of the new year and that's where we are at the moment and then there's spring in bullock then there's bealtaine which is summer and then lunasa which is the harvest but um, Samhain is uh, the dark, the dark uh, days. And so there's talk about Samhain and Deirdre explains the whole, the, the traditions associated with Samhain. And then I do a piece where I talk about the dark days <laughs> of the pandemic and the third lockdown, which I found very, very dark. So I, I think people will relate to it um, in that they will um, remember some of the experiences that they had as well. And then go through the, the Celtic calendar to, you know, in Bullock, which is spring, where there's renewal and where there's um, uh, colour and light. And, you know, Bealtaine then where there's um, abundance and then harvest. So, yeah, it was it was it was lovely. It's lovely to have written it. We wrote it during the lockdown, the third lockdown, and it was via Zoom, like all of our consultations mm. and our meetings, because she was over on the island and I was here. I sat at this table and sometimes I'd come down and turn on the laptop and say, I cannot, I cannot do this anymore. It was very hard in the beginning. Okay. But I think that was um, the doom and gloom of lockdown. I found it very uh, debilitating, the third lockdown. But, you know, persevered and uh, got a, a rhythm and got a um, a voice which worked for both of us. And, yeah, we're very proud of it now. And it would make an excellent stocking filler. Of course. It just, <laughs> it's out just in time for Christmas. Journey to the Well available in all good bookshops. Um, so, and that that's your sixth book. So, in reality, yeah. you're, you're as much an author as you are uh, a broadcaster. Would you... Are you going to write a seventh? I love writing. I really, really love writing. 
I also, since I retired from Nationwide, I write a column once a month for Ireland's Own, which is a magazine yeah. which has been going for more than 100 years. And I also write a column for the West Cork Opinion, which is a magazine down around Clonakilty and Bandon. Um, and it's a lovely discipline to have those deadlines. There are two deadlines every month. And, and you also have to say, what am I going to write about this month? There's always something. Um, I just love uh, writing. I really do. I love the discipline of it. I love the fact that um, you can just go from your heart and say what's in your heart. And I've always, when I've given talks to some people who would like to write, um, I always say, just, just go from your heart and be totally honest and totally true to yourself. And if at the end you say, no, I've just gone, a, I've just gone too far, I'm not happy with that, you don't have to press send you can press delete or archive or whatever <laughs> um so yeah and i've never the other thing is that anything anytime i've done that with the the five books before this um i've said okay i'm, I'm gonna write about this now um which might be something like marriage breakdown or ill health or my my mother's death and you kind of go very deep and very close to the bone and i say okay i'm gonna write it and then if i don't like it i don't have to send it but i've never not sent it and I really feel that that's the advice I would give to people, that when you're being honest and when you're being true and true to yourself, um, you know, you, you won't have any regrets. Mm. And would you prefer to write by yourself or would you write a, another book with, a, let's say, Deirdre again or another, another oh, person? Oh, uh, well, I mean, it's one thing writing with your sister with whom you have a very close bond. Um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's more difficult. It's a bit like the Eurovision. I found it easier to do it on my own. Than mm. to do, than I would have to do it alongside somebody. Um, I uh, it's a huge commitment writing a book. It really the reason we got it done in what uh, ten months was because of lockdown. There was very little else going on <laughs> in our lives, but uh, it really is a massive commitment. And the other ones I wrote while I was working full time, so um, like it'd be right through the night and through holidays and taking time off. Um, but you get such a sense of accomplishment. It's the 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 way I um, describe it is I've run the the Dublin City Marathon twice, and that is hard. But the sense of satisfaction that you get when you train for it and then do it is the it's similar to when you write a book and you put in the the hours and the research and then you actually write the end <laughs> um, it's it's very satisfying so yeah I probably would write another book um but at the moment I'm so happy to be just writing articles you know a column once a month for um for two magazines because mm. oh. you know I'm um I I love working and I love the fact that I'm doing this series for TG Cahar at the moment and I did the one for RTE but I don't want to be working it's a bit like when my children were younger and I came to the end of my career break, I chose not to continue working full-time because I felt they needed me. Um, at this point in my life, I don't want to be working full-time. I want to do spurts because I, uh, I want to live. I want to have these, you know, the joy of human relations. And I have two little grandchildren down in Limerick and I don't want... Nobody gets to the end of their life and says... Uh, I wish I'd worked more. They all get to the <laughs> end of their lives point. and say, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. And being grandmother, uh, of course, I, I wouldn't know yet. Um, no, you're a bit young. I'm a parents. bit young, luckily. <laughs> but uh, my understanding is it, it, it's 
all the good things about being a parent. You get to just do yeah, the, the actually, stuff. it's funny you should say that because there was an article in the Guardian um, this week, and they invited me on to Drive Time, the radio program, to talk about it because it's a, a professor in uh, Emory University in Atlanta who um, studied the, the the brain reaction of people when they saw photographs of their grandchildren as opposed to photographs of their adult children, mm-hmm. and the it was a more positive response. When they watched, when they looked at photographs of their grandchildren. Now that was the premise of um, the, the the conversation, and that was why they asked me to come on to comment on it. And I disagreed because I I, I, I explained to them, I absolutely adore little Paddy and little Holly, but um, they're part of my bloodline. It'll never be any different. I really really love them, but I also love my daughter, their mother, and. The, the my primal bond and my deep bond is definitely with her and I love them because they are of her if mm. you know what I mean and uh, with all grandparents you do anything you can to help your children um, get through the <laughs> difficult <laughs> early years but yeah no I, I um, you do get to do the nice things um, and as they say hand them back but my advice always uh, to my younger friends um well, when mine were small, you tend, if, you, if they were happy, say for instance they were watching something on television uh, or doing a jigsaw or something on the floor and they weren't fighting, um, my default position there was to, okay, they're quiet, I'll go and I'll fill the washing machine mm. or I'll empty the dishwasher. Mistake. Don't do it. And you have this in front of you, Tom, in the fullness of time. Uh, don't say, oh, I'll just get this job done or I'll get that job done. Sit and watch the telly with them. Sit and do the jigsaw with them, which is what grandparents do with their grandchildren. But they're loving it because they really didn't do it all that much with their children. And I'm as guilty as anybody else, but definitely that would be my advice. To embrace the moment. And were you yeah. always able to embrace the moment? Over these, uh, you say there now, when you were uh, when you had your own children, <laughs> you would run off and uh, sometimes mm. to the filled washing machine. Um, was there any point at which you said, God, I'm going to start embracing the moment now? Uh, well you see the, the, the difficulty and the problem is that you don't get that time back you know when like Paddy is two and a half now and um, the things that he wants to do with you at two and a half they, they move on very quickly um, so you, you actually don't get to kind of press pause and as a parent and say well no I'm, I'm, I'm going to now embrace the moment as you say you, you get to a stage there then where you you have no choice because they have to be at football at nine and they have to be at gymnastics at half ten and all those kinds of things so you are then you're embracing the moment but you're there you have a function it's the it's the just the just the kind of being in their airspace and not expecting anything of it that I think is very beautiful mm. Anyway, Mary Kennedy, uh, broadcaster, author, uh, including of author of the, the recently released Journey to the Well with your, your sister Deirdre, just in time for Christmas, a perfect Christmas present. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on Panoramica, which is uh, produced pleasure. by Ryan Coyle. And uh, thank you to Paula Healy for the logo, as well as um, Joe O'Brien for the theme song. Thank you, Mary. Not at all. You're welcome. I really enjoyed the chat.